Mindfulness Mode 91. I love when something seems impossible at first and I get to break it down. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness on Mindfulness Mode with me, your host, Bruce Langford. On Mindfulness Mode, we talk about how people from all walks of life have discovered mindfulness and how it's impacted their lives to help them become more calm, focused, and happy. Thanks so much for joining us here on Mindfulness Mode. To thank you for listening, I'll send you a free copy of my book. I teamed up with author Brian Tracy to create our best-selling book called Cracking the Success Code. You'll learn more about my story and how I became an anti-bullying advocate and mindfulness coach. To get the book free, go to mindfulnessmode.com slash cracking. Enter your name and email and you'll have the book downloaded in no time. Okay, Mindful Tribe, let's get started. I'm totally thrilled to have Barry Friedman on the line today. Hey, Barry, are you in mindfulness mode? Mm, yes, I am, Bruce, <laughs> completely. I'm here with you. Super. Barry Friedman is a professional juggler, having performed at the White House, on The Tonight Show, and at the Academy Awards, and even for the King of Spain. Barry is also an advocate of the sugar-free lifestyle and strongly believes that processed sugars are responsible for multiple health problems and wellness issues. He's single-handedly converted thousands of people to adopt a sugar-free eating pattern through his online 30 Days Sugar-Free Challenge. Barry is sugar-free and he practices mindfulness to stay sharp, focused, and grounded. So, Barry, tell Mindful Tribe, what does mindfulness mean to you? Yeah, it's funny. Bruce is a four-time world juggling champion. Uh, I, I can honestly say that I have one of the few jobs in the world, besides maybe an airline pilot, where if you're only good 99.5% of the time, uh, it could be fatal. <laughs> <laughs> juggling, juggling demands 100% mindfulness. It really does. Every minute I'm on stage, every um, minute in practice, I've been a professional juggler since 1982 and since, as you had mentioned, performed all over the world and uh, for the last 28 years or so at a high-end corporate events around the world and big pressure events. So I, I think juggling taught me how to be so present and to store information to use to be even more mindful in the future. That makes some sense. Yeah, it does make sense. So when did you know that juggling was something you loved? Oh, it was funny. I remember the day it was at a summer camp in Sea Valley, California, just outside the San Fernando Valley. The first 15 years of my life or so were not pleasant. I wouldn't wish them on anybody. Uh, I was born to two kids who decided it would be fun to rub their parts together. And you know, there wasn't a lot of planning. There wasn't a lot of nurturing, any good parenting. And I was somehow my grandma sent me to the summer camp when I was 15 that summer. And a guy there, he said, for your bunk, boys bunk 10, I remember it very clearly, we could either go to the arts and crafts room and do some kind of art project, or we could go out by the pool and learn juggling. And my mind was that arts and crafts room is really hot and smelly. And, uh, <laughs> and I bet you anything within 10 minutes of this so-called juggling lesson, uh, we'll throw the balls down and be in the pool. And that sounded great to me on a hot July afternoon. Oh yeah. So I, uh, I opted for the juggling and I was the last one into the pool that day. And, uh, here I am, what is it coming up on 40 years later? I still not put the balls down. So you love juggling. You obviously had an affinity for it. Is that right? That when you first started? Well, it's funny. There were about 12 of us in the class. And I remember really clearly being one of the last couple people to get the three balls going. Like the other people seemed to get them going a lot faster than me. But it connected with me. And there was another guy in, in the group with me named Mike Boyer. And he was, uh, 
he was another guy who really seemed to like it, or he may have already been able to juggle. But I remember at the end of that camp, it was a, about a three or four week camp. On the last night, we did a we did a show. They put this little cheesy sheet up. It was like the old we'll hang a sheet and do a show. Yeah. But they put a sheet up and we did this show. And there's a picture. I found it on Facebook of me and Mike from that night doing this amazing little juggling show. And I remember the people applauding, the people laughing. And I remember thinking very clearly to myself that from this moment on, life will never be the same. And it wasn't. Isn't that something? And I heard you tell the story once about talking to your uh, school guidance counselor about this. Yeah. Tell us that story. Yeah, I do that in my live talks. And, and it's uh, when I kind of talk about impossible, I was uh, in 11th grade. My parents could see that juggling was getting, uh, pardon the pun, but a little out of hand. I mean, I would literally juggle at nights until the webbing between my pointer finger and my thumbs was cracked pretty much every night. And I was sh- shirking in my homework. Uh, Not doing great in grades. And all I really wanted to do was practice this thing I had learned. Uh, I got to the point where it wasn't uh, possible. I, through a series of events, ended up taking the uh, Amtrak train down from Los Angeles down to San Diego, where the Highway 10 is located. Yes. And I hitchhiked with a friend of mine all the way across country. I was going to go to Ringling Brothers uh, Clown College. Moving the story forward, a couple of weeks later, we got there. I, uh, Found out you had to actually apply. It was a real college. I couldn't uh, just knock on the door with my three <laughs> balls and get in. Yeah. And uh, so I flew back home, went to my high school guidance counselor. He said, that's the one of the best stories I ever heard. I'm going to put you back in school as if this didn't happen, which I thought was great. And they said, I just want to warn you that if you're thinking of doing this professional juggling thing, I can guarantee you that you'll be broken homeless by the time, by the time you're 22 years old. I was just 23, getting ready to turn 24 the first time I was on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And I was standing back stage, Bruce, the guy's getting ready to open the curtain, the same guy who's opened the curtain for uh, Johnny since he first went live. Yeah. Uh, and I just remember thinking, man, I hope Mr. Pavlik is watching right now because I hope he never tells another kid to not hold on to his dream. So uh, a lot of lessons along the way taught me about being mindful and listening to uh, my insides. Well, it certainly didn't slow you down, did it, Barry? I think it may have inspired me. I never yeah. know whether to hate that guy or to love him. Well, I think, you know, we, we have to think, you know, he was just doing what he thought he should do. He was trying to protect you, I'm, I'm assuming, and trying to help you. Little did he know that he was propelling you. Yeah, I would say the uh, good professional high school guidance counselor doesn't say to a student, oh, you like juggling? That's fantastic. That's, <laughs> it's probably not real good. Advice. Well, it's amazing how it turned out for you. It really is. And, mm. but tell us some of the struggles when you first started and you were a professional juggler. Okay. So you, you performed on the, the tonight show, but I'm sure it wasn't all a smooth and easy road. What, what kind of challenges did you have as you made this your career? It wasn't terrible. You know, most of the challenges took place on the, uh, the space between my ears where most of our challenges take uh, place. I mean, I was, yes. I was a young kid. I, uh, you know, didn't have a lot of obligations. Mm -hmm. I had started going to junior college after high school and I met the man who I still to this day do my shows with. We're on year 34 of being Raspini brothers. And it's been an incredible ride, but we kind of took off, went to a Renaissance festival in the Midwest in uh, a little place called Kenosha, Wisconsin. And from there we got, that was six weeks. We got invited to one in Shakopee, uh, Minnesota. And then we went down to one in Texas and it turns out we were gone. I think, I don't know, maybe four or five months that first trip. And it was just remarkable. I came home and didn't know what to do with myself, but I knew I'd made a lot of money, uh, did something I love. Daniel and I had a phenomenal act for having been together four or five months. 
And it was more fun than I knew what to do with, you know, any loss of relationships or fear of intimacy with other people had gone away. I had made friends. I had seen people who were creative and brilliant and daring. And I just, I loved that crowd. I, uh, didn't look back. I think it was 1986. So four years later, we had our first Tonight Show appearance, which led to uh, Billy Crystal was home watching, called uh, our management company the next day. And that's a very loose term management. It's just a guy who happened to get us on Tonight Show. Yeah. And, and but he did end up working with us for a few years. And Billy Crystal wanted us to start touring with him as an opening act. We did that for on and off for six years. We his good buddy, Robin Williams, called us. We opened for Robin for six years and uh, uh, uh a string of headliners uh, in the late eighties and early nineties. That's what we did. We were on airplanes and casinos and big universities and theaters opening for everyone from Patti LaBelle to Ashford and Simpsons, Howie Mandel, um, Paul Anka, uh, Bob Hope. We did dates with, uh, I don't know, maybe two dozen celebrities there. It, it's a, it's a whole list of fun people. Well, it just sounds like a dream come true. It just sounds uh, absolutely surreal, really. But tell us what you alluded to earlier. Talk about that space between your ears and how that presented a challenge and how mindfulness maybe got you through it. Sure. I mean, isn't that where it all comes? Yeah. You know, the critical voices, the uh, experiences. I work with young boys in uh, something called uh, Boys to Men, Rite of Passage Adventures. And in that 48 hours, we help them look at at their story, you know, where they've taken on, what messages they've taken on. And the truth is by the time kids are 12 years old, much younger than that, but this is when they can actually start talking about them in a, mm -hmm. you know, in a, in a weekend like this, we, they get to hear themselves talk about beliefs they have and they don't know where they came from. You know, maybe it was from something somebody said or a comment they got from a relative. I, I, I really believe that we're one sentence away, either good or bad, from complete our complete destiny changing at, at any given time, especially in youth. I had a, a grandfather, my stepmom's uh, father, Grandpa Grandpa Red. He was really the only person that believed in my juggling. And every time I'd see him, he'd go, what new tricks do you have? Let me see. And no one in my family was that way. You know, everyone mm -hmm. else was like, oh, my gosh, don't do that thing you do. You know, it was, it was like it was a cold sore. <laughs> um, oh. but yeah, red was just like all over it. And boy, he inspired me. And, uh, are there any, where do jugglers work? He'd ask me, you know, and I was like, Oh, I think they're in Las Vegas, you know, and he'd do whatever he could, you know, pre-internet to kind of find mm -hmm. what there was. And I remember the first juggler I saw in Las Vegas and yeah, everything just kind of kept going. Like, this is what it all led towards all the stories, any abuse I'd had or a neglect, any of that stuff. It was all just about, uh, helping me get stories in my head and then having someone there to turn them around really in a second. And I, and I became keenly aware of people who were trying to pop my bubble. Uh, and, and that's been very helpful to have a mindfulness around does this. And I still do that to this day, Bruce. I mean, I will be offered something or be asked to invited to do something or to work with somebody, uh, whatever it is. And I just instantly go to, uh, you know, does this turn my, my dimmer switch way up or does it turn my dimmer switch down? And that, litmus test, being able to have something like that so clear in my life um, came from the exactness of juggling, from the hours, the 10,000 hours of practice on that, from winning world championships and that, from trusting myself, that now I don't even get into the, the mind chatter or the mental negotiations on something. It's like, does the dimmer go up or does it go down? And then I take action from there. Right. If it's not a hell yes, you just forget it. Right. There's that test too. It's a great <laughs> test. That's right. Yeah. For some, yeah. My dad was an electrical engineer and I was very attuned to electrical things. So I, I, his whole idea, like we used to put in a dimmer switch or something, I go, wow, what a great thing. You could turn that sucker up or down. I love yeah. that. 
Yeah, so, that is a great thing. Like yeah. It. So it's, it almost sounds like mindfulness pulled you through this rough childhood, mindfulness of juggling, and then got you to where you needed to be and you just moved forward. But wow, what a challenge it must be keeping those uh, balls in the air as it is. But what's the, the scariest thing you've ever juggled? Oh, let's see. And juggle in my act. I, I juggled. You ever seen these? They're on late night TV. That's like the amazing garden weasel. They're <laughs> yes. Like, they're like these pointed stars. There's two of them on each one. Yeah. And I juggle those in my act. I do some quite difficult juggling tricks with those, um, throwing them up in the air, spinning around underneath them and catching them back uh, while still juggling. And yeah, a number of times they've landed point side first in the back of my hand. And uh, my favorite time that ever happened, and I'll give you a link to this on your, uh, on your page, if you'd Super, like, I was doing a show for the 9,000 people at the American Association of Critical Care Nurses. And I turned around after one of those, all three were coming down. One hit me right in the hand and started bleeding. Uh And what happened right after that, the five minutes of improvisational comedy of trying to get a Band-Aid out of 9,000 nurses was hilarious. (laughs) It it was just so funny. But yeah, so that's been fun. I also do this thing with um, uh, real glasses, uh, kind of sensitive glasses and eggs and sticks. And it's all balancing up on my face. And I knock out the platforms and you know the old tablecloth trick where you pull it out and the dishes are still there? Yes. I do that kind of with these plastic sheets. I hit them out and the eggs fall into the cups and the cups fall together. It's it's really quite a scene. So, yeah, I've, I I love challenge. And maybe this goes to mindfulness, but I love when something seems impossible at first and I get to break it down. And juggling is all about that. Well, it really is. And it's amazing how you've you've pulled this off and you just seem to be having constant fun through the weeks, months, and as the years go by. Yeah, 54 right now. And I'm still, I'm still uh, you know, I may be a 14-year-old. I'm, I'm very on par with my son right now in maturity level. <laughs> and he's 14, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my son is too. Well, let's talk about the ups and downs of being addicted to sugar. How does that work? And how did that affect your juggling career? Yeah, it's funny, you know, and I never really thought of myself as being a guy who lives without sugar. To, to the contrary, I was good for a couple Snickers bars uh, a week. Some Reese's peanut butter cups. I mean, I had something hideous every single day of my life. That was just part of the eating, the cakes, the cookies. In fact, in the green rooms, it's unbelievable. When you're an entertainer, you go into green rooms, you dressing rooms, wherever you get, and there's always the sweet stuff. And I was just a vacuum for it. I just don't know what it was, but it was Leap Day 2012. Uh, I'll go quick on this. I know I told you this story, but Leap Day 2012, my nine-year-old son said, what are you going to leap for Leap Day? And we had just finished eating this frozen yogurt and I felt really disgusting. And my teeth had that familiar kind of pasty scale on them. And my stomach was turning flips. Yeah. And I just, for the heck of it, I just said, I'm going to skip sugar for the day. I thought how neat to go a day without sugar, which for me would have been a big stretch. Mm-hmm. And he was had a great line. He said, I'm not going to do that, but I'm not going to pick my nose for the day. <laughs> said, oh, okay, great. We're all fighting our own battle. <laughs> so uh, I went sugar-free on Leap Day 2012. I, I woke up March 1st, not even understanding what had happened yesterday. The number of decisions I made, um, consciously thinking about what I wanted to eat, turning things down. It felt so different than normal. And I said, gosh, I have to do this again. And I said to my wife, I'm going to try 30 days of this. And around day 21, I mean, day four, day five, there's early days in the challenge where I was crying, shaking. I was on a massage table. I wanted to climb out of my own skin. I wanted to go grab anything sweet and shove it into my face. I had all the classic addictions, uh, symptoms, withdrawal symptoms of any drug addict addict. Yeah. Uh, and, and I got through it all. And around day 21, I said, wow, I feel so different right now. I feel I have focus. My skin looked better. I had already lost a couple pounds of weight. I was sleeping like a baby. I was remembering my dreams. 
Um, I was calm. I had a mindfulness. I was just present. My wife, I think it was around that same time, she said, this is the first time I've ever seen you in a conversation instead of just at one. And uh, that was a very powerful statement to me after, uh, I think at that point, I'd been married 26 years or something. So mm-hmm. I mean, it felt sadness. I felt like the years I had lost. And I said, well, I'm going to, my month wasn't even over when I said, well, I'm going to try this for a year. But I mean, the truth is, uh, I knew that going back to sugar would be like a, you know, standing in line and buying a ticket and sitting through a movie that I didn't like the first time. And I, I've just never gone back to eating anything with processed, refined, added sugar. I, I live on, I love fruit. I enjoy fruit. Uh, and people say, well, that's sugar, you know, or you eat something, uh, pasta, rice, that turns into sugar. Wonderful. Um, I agree with that. I'm not a doctor. And I also think from uh, what I've seen from myself and thousands of people that I've helped go through a 30-day sugar-free experience, that is a hero's journey in its own to knock off the added sugar. In this culture we live in, we, the rich people in the old days used to eat four pounds a year. We're up around 150 for anybody right now. And in fact, the poorer you are, lower socioeconomic class you tend to live in, you're probably eating even more than that. Um, so dropping added sugar, it's a wonderful first step. I tell people, let's get through that 30 days and we can talk about the potatoes and rice later. Yeah, exactly. Well, I met you in the fall of 2013, I think it was. Mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. in the fall of 2013 in Phoenix. And in a, I, I in only a small talked conference to you. room in Phoenix, yeah, I remember exactly. it well. Yeah, and, and uh, we just talked for a few minutes and you told me a little bit about what you were doing. And I just kind of thought about it. I thought about those ups and downs, you know, I thought about yeah. that roller coaster. And I mean, I've never been like, I never thought I was like crazy addicted or anything like that, but I did identify those roller coasters and I identified that feeling of like almost like a faint feeling at times when I was either wanting sugar or maybe I don't think it was so much when I had too much sugar. I think it was kind of at that low yeah. point. I'm just kind of like, Oh, I feel kind of low. Yeah. And you know, where is that, you know, where's that chocolate bar or whatever right. it was. And, where's you know, yeah. and so it, it I think it was in January. Yeah, January 20th, I decided, you know, hey, you know, I got to check out that challenge and get it, get on there for the first of February, you know. I remember that. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. And, and, you know, when you describe those, those days where you're just like, oh, give me anything sweet, just give me something, give me whatever, you know, and wow, that, that's a definite thing, you know, when you have those feelings. But but by the time a month or two is over, you're starting to think, geez, I don't like that yucky, sweet, yeah, flavor that you would get from something artificially sweetened. You know, it is different when you eat something like a piece of fruit or something. You know, it's It's, non-processed, right? It's so unbelievable, Bruce. Uh, And it's fun. I remember emails from you early on and saying, hey, we met in this thing, and then you did it. And then once in a while, you chime in. We have a uh, secret Facebook group for people who are doing or have done the challenge. And I just love seeing your name in there. And it, it always, it goes back to what I said a few minutes ago in the conversation, that we're a, a sentence or two away in either direction from our life radically changing. And uh, yeah, chatting with you in that room that day, uh, something must have been said or come up that, that rang a bell of truth in you. And uh, it's, it's touching to me. It, it means the world to me that... Uh, Someone who lives in a different country, uh, far away, and have never seen you since that day, our interaction had some uh, profound effect on your body and your life. I love that. Yeah, it really did. And, you know, I grew up in a family on a, on the farm where, you know, we just ate 
pies and cakes and all this kind of thing all the time. And I was telling somebody, you know, we used to have this couch in the kitchen and there I had four brothers and we would eat this big meal with all this bread and maple syrup and all this kind of thing. And then we would just race to the couch. Who gets the couch? You know, I have dibs on the couch because we were all exhausted, you know, from eating all this sugar, you know. And of course, I didn't see it that way. I remember it. And I'm like, oh, you know, we ate all this bread. We ate all this sugar. And my dad loves maple syrup and he would make it every year. He'd make 30 or 40 gallons. And that was for us. And there'd be maple syrup on the table every meal. And we'd pour it on cereal at breakfast and we'd pour it on, on anything we could think of. We'd just have a bowl of it. We just, and and maple syrup is one of the best sugars that you can eat actually, if you're into eating sugar because it's alkaline, but at the same time, it's still sugar. And it just was added to all the other sugars that we had. And so, you know, you said the word calm, and that really, really is a word that I think of when I think of going sugar-free, because all of a sudden those peaks Mm. and valleys are just leveled off and you feel calm. And you feel the same, don't you? Oh my gosh, Bruce. It's a it's it's pretty remarkable for me, I, and I know I talk, I speak quickly, and uh, people hear this energy in me, and they're like, "Wow, you know, you, I, I, you are young. I've never had caffeine. That was never something I got into." Yeah. And well, what I've learned from thousands of people doing this challenge and really being in their lives is that it's so much scarier before you've ever done it than while you're doing it or after you've done it. I got an email from a woman today who I wrote about a couple of weeks ago. Um, who, gosh, what did she write me originally? It was just, she just called, I don't like this. You probably saw the email. I said, I yes, don't I like did. this. I don't want to do this. I don't, Sandy, I wrote about her. Yeah. And she just wrote me and she said, I'm doing this challenge. She goes, I can't even believe I'm reading these words to you, but I am going to do this challenge again. And I've just, I've come so far. I was trying to look this up because my gosh, I can't imagine. Maybe I'll send you a copy. Oh, here it is. Rob and Kathleen, she goes, Quick question for you. I made it through the challenge, but not without a few stumbles. I want to stay on and do the next challenge again for another month. Um, and I, people come into my challenge. I can do it anytime for the rest of her life again. So she just asked, can I do that? She goes, also, please don't think. I, oh, she corrected me on a typo. She's, she's so funny. She said there was a typo in something. That's great. Um, when she wrote something. Oh, she wrote, I can't even believe I'm thinking about trying this again and writing it to you. So Pretty funny after that first uh, email she wrote me where it caused me to write to my my whole list and just kind of say, hey, here's what happens. Here is, I think oh, the funny thing of that email was she was some age and I did the math and she had been sugar-free eight days, which was 0.0007% of 1% of her entire life. <laughs> and she's like, I don't see the changes. I don't feel the changes. I don't want to keep doing this. Yeah. Oh, so funny. But I just, I love the timing of that, that she just, yeah, wrote me back. That is fantastic. And it's true. It takes time. And sometimes, you know, some of the changes I noticed came even at four, five, six months, you know, like I noticed the change in my skin. I, you know, I noticed the change in just how everything seemed to level out. And I just felt so much better overall and sleep. I just, I just fall asleep in like 20 or 30 seconds every single night. And I sleep really soundly. And then I wake up feeling refreshed. And, yeah, how and, I want to apologize to my body for uh, all the years of eating a big bowl of ice cream or cereal or, you know, something before bed. Because, yeah, sleep is beautiful now. I mean, I can I can thrive. I can wake up. I do triathlons. I swim a couple miles every week. And I could 
I could uh, live very well on six hours sleep without ever changing because it's so easy now and it comes so fast. But um, yeah, a lot of changes there. And, you know, the point of that is because now people listening to this are so far from that. What I will only tell you is uh, that it's scary at the beginning and it's nothing but bliss from the second your body starts thanking you in ways that you can't even imagine. Yeah, that's true. Well, Barry, you talked about Boys to Men and the Mankind Project, and you you know that I've worked in bullying prevention for a while, and I really know that mindfulness helps kids and adults who have been bullied immensely. Do you have any stories about this topic of bullying where mindfulness would have made a difference? Yeah, that's great that you do that, by the way. I just want to point that out. Yeah, I think for about the last eight years, I've been involved a couple of weekends a year. I in, involved with an organization called uh, Boys to Men, and we do rites of passage adventure weekends for boys um, because it's something very important to me and you, I imagine, having a teenage son. Oh, yeah. I mean, I look around, I look at uh, statistics, and I look at this ancient African proverb that says, uh, if we don't initiate the boys, they'll burn down the village. And I don't need to look too far to see 21st century examples of burning down the village going on. Um, 15% of girls on college, college campuses involved in sexual encounters they don't want, uh, you know, rape and anything down from that. Lethargy in, in young boys not knowing if they have a place in the world, what they're doing. Uh, we have to initiate the boys. Uh, and then bullying, of course, a big one, you know, just bullying that goes on in the world. How, how does that come to be? It comes to be from not initiating boys. So my only story of being a bully uh, they're not exciting because I learned at a young age how to get along, how to make friends. It's what I had to do with my childhood. I was also a musician. I was in the band. I was in the marching band. I was in the ham radio club. I was in, uh, uh, I, I was, uh, I juggled, you know, so I did all these things at school. I got along with every group. I was in cross country. So mm-hmm. I got along. I mean, really to me, staying out of the way of bullies was, uh, was a matter of getting along and, and being a, a peaceful person. I also use that to my advantage. Sometimes I never felt good. I mean, I think in bullying, there's two positions. There's uh, three positions. There's the kind of the persecutor, there's the victim, and then there's the bystander. Yeah. And I consider each of those a major role in bullying. And I have always been to this day, I continue to be a fourth party. I get involved uh, sometimes in the craziest ways ever. I heard a story someone recently told that I just loved and I don't ever want to be around violence, but this guy was witnessing some bullying and going on and he kind of jumped in the middle and he goes, Hey, you guys, my girlfriend's over there and we're trying to find an Italian restaurant. And I just wonder if either of you guys know of a good Italian restaurant and it turned into this whole thing and they were getting mad at him and he goes, Oh yeah, I'm sorry. I wouldn't ask my girlfriend. We're just on a first date. And, and he ended up diffusing this situation to where the guy who was starting the thing just walked away. And I was like, Oh man, I just loved that. Oh Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I'm always looking for ways to, when I'm in those situations to bring some calm. And maybe it was the peacemaker in me and my family who, uh, you know, always made the joke and uh, became a comedian who does that as well. Well, Perry, that's a great story. It really is. My next questions are part of the multi-mode round. Just short 30-second oh. answers are perfect. Who's, who is one person who's influenced your mindfulness practice? I think my wife. She was uh, born in the Midwest. She wasn't uh, an L.A. person. She wasn't part of show business ever. And uh yeah, she's a beautiful mother and just uh, a, bl- a real believer in me. So I think I've, I've been influenced by her. She teaches music to, to small children, zero to four-year-old kids and uh, mommy and me music classes. And I think it's 
one of the most peaceful things in the world she gets to do. Oh, that's great. That does sound peaceful. How has mindfulness affected your emotions? Oh, it keeps me, wow, Bruce, these are good ones. It keeps me uh, present. It, it allows me to, to kind of run that little litmus test about my dimmer that I uh, mentioned a while ago, you know, and, and yeah. do I want to go to war on this one's a big question. I think anyone who's in, in a marriage uh, has asked themselves, is this the, uh, is this the argument or is this the conversation I want to go to war over? And it, it rarely is. <laughs> Tell us how breathing is a part of your mindfulness practice. Oh, it's funny you mentioned that. I was in the, my son and our foreign exchange student. We were in Davis in a hot tub playing around a couple of weekends ago, and there was a clock on the wall, and we were having competitions for holding our breath. So I don't know what that means, but maybe there's a calmness that comes from uh, not living sugar-free or for the concentration of juggling uh, something in my life. But I won the contest by just breaking two minutes underwater in a jacuzzi. So cool. I do enjoy breathing, though. I love, uh, <laughs> I love deep breathing. I'll take deep breaths to calm myself quite often. Yeah, I, I love it too. If you could recommend a book on mindfulness, what would it be, Barry? I love this book uh, by Stephen Pressfield called The War of Art. And it may not be about mindfulness, but it's short essays that every creative person in the world should read because it sets up the book. The, antagon the uh, antagonist in this book is, a, is called Resistance. It's a character called Resistance. And what always trumps the resistance is mindfulness is coming back to is this real is this me is this in uh, congruency with who i am in the world does it feel authentic to me so yeah the war of art i love that book too barry oh, can good. yeah can you share an app which helps you to be more mindful oh is this too uh left brain nerdy if i say google calendar <laughs> no, i don't think so i, I use google you, calendar I too that. i i couldn't live without it I don't know if Google, Google people are listening to your podcast, but I would pay, uh, I would pay uh, to use that any day of the year because it's, uh, yeah, the way it's shared and the way it takes care of my time and removes me from having to remember the what ifs. And uh, yeah, I love that app. Yeah. What advice would you give a person who's new to the idea of mindfulness and they'd like to start using it in their life? Mm. Yeah, that's good. I guess what I would ask, so what I would recommend somebody do is uh, some of the things you've asked just now. Read books about it, um, breathe, and um, develop some sort of a litmus test of am I being mindful right now? And, and I think, you know, what comes up as I say that, Bruce, is really this is different for every single person, mindfulness, right? So to get some definition, because if you're someone who watches a ton of TV, who's never done any sort of personal growth work, for you, mindfulness may be getting through a podcast, a 25, 30-minute podcast with two people talking about mindfulness. That might be a huge step of your hero's journey. And if you are living in some sort of mindfulness now, what's the challenge you can do for yourself that, that feels on the edge? What, what's, what's an edge that you're willing to lean into? Barry, it's been such a pleasure to spend this time with you today. And I am so inspired by not only what you've done with your life as a juggler, but your sugar-free adventure. That's so exciting. Tell Mindful Tribe how we can contact you and learn more about what you do, Barry. Sure. 30 days, that's with an S, 30daysugarfree.com. Uh, that's a website where I, I think I offer a couple things. It's usually switching around, but uh there's usually some sugar-free menus, a bunch of great sugar-free recipes, a contact form where you can definitely get in touch with me. Um, my, my juggling world, you want to see what it's like to throw things around for 30 years, is a name that we invented on a car ride to 
uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin back in 1982. It's Raspini, R-A-S-P-Y-N-I.com. And, um, yeah, and that's, you know, that's good. I'm, I'm, I'm very reachable on all the other Facebooks and Twitters and things like that. Oh, that's cool. I'm the tall, bald one. If there's more than one Barry Friedman, I'm the tall, bald one. And there are more than one on, online. I notice when I Google your name, a couple of other people come up, but uh, nobody like you, I'll tell you that much. Probably not. Yeah. yeah. I'm a weird combination. <laughs> Most Friedmans have a plaque on the door that say what kind of doctor they are. Right. Yeah. Well, you're a pretty special guy and it's awesome to have you on the show. Thanks so much for being part of Mindfulness Mode, Barry. Thankful, Bruce. Thank you, Bruce. And thank you, Mindful Tribe. Really nice to talk to you all. Awesome. Bye now. Thank you so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For insightful blog articles and show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by clicking on the iTunes link on our website and leave a rating and review. In appreciation, I'll mention you at the top of an upcoming show. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.